right. Everything's looking good. Gentlemen, uh, shall we start? Well, I may, I may change my mind at the end of this, but when I saw this build as the hawk versus a dove, it made me think of a boxing promoter who was establishing the world championship between the heavyweight and the featherweight uh, boxing champions of the world. And when they show up in the ring, there's three kilograms of weight difference between the two. We'll see. But. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Is now the time to pay for COVID-19? It's a commonly held belief that the bigger the government debt, the lesser the private economic activity, as large government borrowing dampens business investment and household spending. Canada's net debt to GDP ratio is a canary in the economic coal mine. For University of British Columbia economics professor Kevin Milligan, a harsh cure for high debt levels may do more damage to the next generation of Canadians than allowing that ratio to slowly fall over time. Don Drummond disagrees. The adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University warns that the ratio has jumped as many as 20 percentage points and that a strong policy response is justified. I'm worried about Canada's debt burden, but I want to clarify, I, I am not arguing that governments, and I mean by that federal, provincial, and municipal, shouldn't have had a strong response to the pandemic. Uh, we were in a very strong possibility of an economic and almost a societal freefall uh, when the pandemic hit and a strong response. So I'm not trying to rewrite the history of the last two years. Mine's going forward. And uh, really, I guess what really kind of crystallized my concern was uh, the infamous chart on page 55 of the budget, which sort of seemed to sort of imply we should break out the champagne because we could might be able to, under really optimistic scenarios, get back to our debt burden pre-pandemic in the next 34 years. And then Ontario followed that up, was presenting a picture in 10 years' time we might get back to a balanced budget if they start program spending and implied that that really had no consequences for programs or for society. So it's sort of that lackadaisical attitude of the debt burden staying really high for a long time is my, my concern, not what's happened during the pandemic so far. I think there's a couple of important things in what Don has said. Um, and uh, one is to be very clear on the distinction between federal and provincial fiscal uh, forecasts, uh, because I, in my view, they are extraordinarily different. And the big reason is um, that uh, the expenditure responsibilities of the two levels of government are very different. And uh, good uh, estimates from the C.D. Howe Institute suggest that over the next 10 years, we're going to see two, maybe three percentage point increase in um, uh, health expenditures at the provincial level, and that's essentially what is going to cause uh, big challenges at the provincial level, uh, much less so at the federal level, uh, given their uh, less responsibility for, um, for health spending. But the big picture there is that, um, you know, uh, even under what looks to be very uh, pessimistic forecasts, the federal debt level over the next 30, 40 years really doesn't grow very much. And it just looks like attacking that as our key uh, fiscal policy challenge right now seems like it's a misguided thing. We really ought to be focusing where the challenge is, which is at the provincial level. To maintain that apples to apples comparison, though, Kevin, it sounds like a 50 percent net debt to GDP ratio doesn't really concern you. you know, the Americans are at 108 percent. A, having been our, in our fiscal shoes since 2001 or so, and even the European Central Bank says, you know, the optimal level can be as high as 70 percent. It is difficult to get apples to apples comparisons. You have things like 
uh, you know, total government debt, including provincial and federal, uh, uh, which is different when you compare to the U.S. with state and federal. Um, you also have things like net debt versus gross debt, which is really important distinction because Canada, unlike any other uh, G7 country, has pre-saved for its public pensions through the Canada Pension Plan, which makes a substantial difference to uh, the affordability of our aging going forward on the pension side. Um, so we, we're trying to make apples to apples comparison is difficult. But the bottom line is, uh, you're right, a, a 50% federal debt to GDP ratio uh, does not concern me. Uh, what I want to have is I want to see it going down, not going up. I don't want to be increasing the burden on future generations. I don't want to make it harder for provincial governments to do what they have to do over the next 20 years. But uh, a stable and gently declining debt to GDP ratio that starts at 50% and is going down does not concern me. Don, you've argued that the large government debt crowds out private economic activity and large government borrowing dampens business investment and household spending. But interest rates are at rock bottom levels. There's little expectation for a normalization of rates. As a matter of fact, I had a Bay Street money manager recently tell me he doesn't expect normalization to happen within his working lifetime, and he's still got 15 more years left on the clock. So why so worried? First of all, just a comment on two things that Kevin said. Uh, just because one is more concerned about the provincial debt situation than the federal doesn't mean that the federal shouldn't also be of concern. Uh, just because something is worse than something else doesn't mean you forget about the first. And secondly, you can't separate the two. The provincial fiscal situation is contagious to the federal situation. That's explicit in the Conservative Party platform. Um, at the request of a journalist yesterday, I worked out some numbers of how the combination could work out of keeping the Canada's health transfer at 6% growth while balancing the budget in 10 years. And unless you have extraordinarily high uh, economic growth, you essentially would have to starve all federal programming to feed the beast of the transfer. So you, you can't just separate the two. And to a degree, the Liberals are doing the same thing. While they're keeping a hard line on the Canada transfer, they're creating boutique transfer programs for mental health and long-term care and on and on, So and, and home care as well. So they are filling some of that space of the provincial. So we really have to look at the total, and our, and our total debt to be ratio on a net basis, as we said in the C.D. Howe report, could be heading towards 140%, and that should concern us. And we should be of less concern of how it appears at the moment it's spread between the federal and provincial, because both will be affected by that. Now, back to your question, I mean, the conventional argument against running big deficits is that sort of traditional one, the crowding out one, that interest rates rise and it crowds out business investment. And, and that is a risk, and that's one of the roles of public policy is to mitigate risks, and we're feeding the risk rather than mitigating the risk. Obviously, it doesn't work like a big concern right now, but we can't, no one can stand here today and say there's a certainty the interest rates are going to stay this low. We, we don't know. Um, anybody who argued that, I could have a counter argument, but uh, somebody else could counter my argument. They're going up and just saying it's a risk and you should take insurance. But I want to hasten to that. That's not the only reason we should be worried about debt. And one of them, from Kevin's framing, that we should be fine if the debt's burden, even if it's 50, as long as it's coming down. I think the young people of the day and the next generation are going to face very serious challenges, more serious than the last couple of generations did. Uh, they're going to have the traditional economic shocks, which don't worry me too much because we tend to go down and come back. They're undoubtedly going to have more health shocks. I think anybody would be foolish to think COVID-19 is the first and only thing. They're going to face their own while they're still paying for ours. We are seeing more and more natural disasters that are having bigger costs, 
I think, again, you'd have to be pretty foolish to stick your head in the sand and say we're not likely to get more than that. They are going to require an awful lot of the resources to adapt to climate change, and they will devote some resources to try to mitigate it. It's gone far too far to make too much of a dent to that. And Canada is going to have an unprecedented economic challenge to transfer to a net zero. We're a carbon-intensive economy. This is not going to be a free ride. There's going to have to be extraordinary responses from the private sector and a constant call on government policy. And can you do that? We are still cleaning up the mess that people left you before. That's my concern. I think you need a free hand, a freer hand at any rate, to meet the challenges that are going to come over the next 30 years. And again, it's all about risk management. Maybe it'll all work out. That's fine. But maybe the challenges of the next 30 years are going to be so challenging that they can't be addressed while paying back for what we've left them on the fiscal side from this period. Well, I fundamentally disagree with something there, which is that for the next generation, the right thing to do is to tighten fiscal policy as they're going through part of their life where they could actually use some government help. I think that a lot of young people would think that is not the right thing we want to do is to make their lives worse by tightening fiscal policy at this point, because that's what we're talking about here. Projections from the PBO baseline, setting aside for a moment the election promises, but from the baseline provided by the parliamentary budget officer going into the election, had uh, the debt to GDP ratio declining, had the deficit hitting three years from now, $24 billion as a share of the economy, uh, very small, around 1% of GDP. So that's kind of where the baseline is, and we can talk about what's going on in the election perhaps later, but that's the baseline going into it. If what we're talking about is being more hawkish than that baseline, what we're talking about is chopping tens of billions of dollars out of spending or increasing taxes in order to become more hawkish than 1% of uh, GDP as a, a deficit to GDP ratio. I, I don't think we need to be more hawkish than that right now. I think that for building towards that, those problems with uh, in the environment and problems with climate change and problems with uh, other things that we need to address, um, the best way to deal with that is to make sure that we have the expenditure there to support those transitions. And further tightening fiscal policy now seems like uh, an odd approach to get there. Well, first of all, let's, uh, we cannot put this election aside. We're into the election. Everybody's piling under the debt. We're not talking about tightening fiscal policy. We're talking about basically there's an attitude, money is free. You can put up a program as long as on the surface of it, it seems to be valuable, it should go ahead. No one is saying money is free. What is out there is whether the debt to GDP ratio ought to be stable and slightly declining or sharply declining. No one is saying, uh, between the two of us anyway, and I haven't heard uh, any party leaders say that we ought to let the debt run uh, without bound. What we're talking about is a gentle decline versus a steeper decline. And so what is in the baseline is a, 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 a gentle decline, and you're advocating for a steeper decline. And I, I just don't think that either of those are, uh, are, are crazy to consider. So then what does a gentle decline look like to you? You said, you know, we don't want to tighten when this generation could use the help. But at what point do we say generations don't automatically start and stop? There's no beginning to one or another. They all sort of blend towards each other. And so it's difficult to point to one particular group and say, we need to keep rates low, as low as they are right now, which is historically low, to help them through these next series of crises. What happens when we hit a crisis and we need to flush the economy with more cash and interest rates are already near zero. Yeah, so this is a reason why I, I think we ought to have a declining debt-to-GDP ratio. It's precisely for the reason that Don mentioned, is to 
to prepare ourselves for future shocks and to give ourselves some comfort room uh, there uh, to handle future shocks. Now, how gentle that decline ought to be and how quickly we start getting there and declare victory on the current crisis is a matter for a lot of debate. But in general, my, uh, my, my stance is that a solid fiscal anchor is one that's going to have a, uh, a declining debt to GDP ratio. And we can have a healthy debate, and I hope we're having that here, of whether that ought to be more gentle or more steep. No, 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 that's not right. So you're talking about the gentle decline in the debt ratio is to be taken as a given. And my point is it's not to be taken as a given. As we demonstrated in our CD How, all you have to do is tweak the economic growth and interest rate ever so slightly in the opposite direction. And instead of going down to 30 or 40 percent, it goes to 60 percent. The Parliamentary Budget Office just put out a projection of 2095 that has economic growth above interest rates through 2095. I mean, that makes no sense. You can't take that as a given as a starting point. If that were true, then society should borrow to infinity because you know your rate of return on your borrowing would exceed the cost of the borrowing. It can't be that way. It's never been that way in history other than the last 20 or 30 years. Is that going to continue forever? And again, maybe it will, but this is about risk management. You can't take that as a given. We cannot take as a given that any definition of the status quo is going to guarantee to the give the debt burden. And again, that doesn't seem to be the attitude you would get from the election platforms, which are digging the hole deeper. So when I look at, at the risk, I, you know, fundamentally what we're talking about uh, in the risk of uh, the debt uh, uh, situation is the risk that we can't pay it back, that we're going to be constrained by the level of taxation that Canadians are willing to put up with, that we cannot pay our debt payments. When you look at the numbers, our debt payments, our interest payments as a share of GDP are at the lowest they've been in a century. And so when you think about the risk that we're actually taking right now, it's at the lowest it's been in a century in terms of our ability to pay it back. Now, of course, as Don is, I'm sure, champing at the bit to mention, interest rates could go up. And that is true. But in order to get to a level where we uh, get even close to where we've been before on interest payments as a comparison to GDP, interest rates would have to go up substantially more than anyone is projecting over the next 30 years. And I would want to point out that you know we have locked in a good portion of our debt using 10 and 30-year bonds at these uh, historically low interest rates, such that even a rebound five years from now, the interest rate up to two or three percent would take some time to find its way into um, the bottom line of the budget. Don, what is the trigger that leads to uh, higher interest rates, interest rate increases that are substantial enough to warrant your concern? First of all, you put it in the context of interest rates, but let's make it crystal clear, the interest rates that we've seen over quite a period of time, in fairness right now, are not natural. Uh, a natural or a neutral interest rate for the short term would be something in the two and a half to three percent. I mean, there there are problems when you run ten-year government bond rates at one point one four percent, and there's virtually no savings. And otherwise, you 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 get the type of borrowing that we've got in virtually every sector of every country in the world, and that is extremely dangerous. So we we actually shouldn't want interest rates to stay this low. They themselves are becoming a source of problem. You wonder all the reasons there's behind our housing problems, lack of affordability, those lower interest rates. So I would just say on a normal basis, we should probably have short-term interest rates in the two and a half to three and a half percent range and longer term rates of four or five. Those are not extraordinarily high. Those are extremely low relative to what we faced until the last 20 years. And that would create a more difficult. But I'm not even so even worried about those numbers. It's a thought process that I think this attitude towards debt is 
Anybody who's analyzed any government program, I'm sorry, but you will come to the conclusion they're ill-designed, they have very vague objectives, the metrics are not designed to tally whether they're successful or not, and nobody tracks them. There's an awful lot of waste. It's not just in the Auditor General reports. And there needs to be a discipline, and every single dollar that's proposed to be spent, there should be a test. Does the value of that exceed the cost of raising the funds? And I don't see that mentality coming. I see it slipping, and I see that's part and parcel of this concern. It doesn't really matter. There's no cost to doing this. Well, somebody may or may have to deal with the future. But if you want to have a new child care program, if you want to have a farmer care, you have to answer the question, is that value going to exceed the cost of doing it? And is it be designed in the most effective and efficient manner? And I see that discipline slipping. And that concerns me an awful lot when we get there. I see a lot of the stuff we've seen proposals is not the most efficient, parsimonious way to do it. And, and nobody's really caring. So perhaps uh, there's a point of, of, of strong agreement between Don and I that you always want to make sure that government programs are well designed. And when they're not well designed, you want to pair them back. You want to be very concerned about the quality of government spending. But that is a separate issue from whether we can afford what we have and whether we have a debt problem right now. Uh, if you want to argue that the quality of the programs that have been proposed in the campaign or that we saw in the budget is low, then that's a, a different argument than saying um, we're, we're in a, a debt crisis and that we're uh, rolling the dice with our future. But I want to get back to something else on the interest rate question. You know, Don pointed out that for 25 years we've been not in a natural state, and that the natural state is two and a half to three and a half percent real interest rates. That was true at one point in history. That is not true now. It's important to realize that uh, the equilibrium in the economy between savings and investment can change through time. And we are, for various global economic reasons, whether it's the uh, big savings rate in China, whether it's the inequality in the U.S. that has led high income earners to have an excess amount of savings, there's a flood of savings in the world that is allowing interest rates to stay low. That is one of the fundamental factors on the savings side of the savings investment balance that has led to a change in the equilibrium interest rate. And so we can um, cling to the 1990s view that the you know normal is what it was in 1995, or we can say, you know, it's, that was 26 years ago, and we have to accept that the world uh, might look different going forward than it did uh, 26 years ago. Except for we're not in a stable equilibrium. Every single sector in every country in the world is beyond their eyeballs in debt. So we're an extremely vulnerable. You can't describe this situation, the interest rates that led to us as unstable. And nor can you say that the decision you should get value from the program is separate to the concept of debt. They're exactly the same concept. If I want to spend $100 million, I can think, I can just spend that and I don't have to worry about how it's funded because I'm just going to borrow it. Or I could say, if I'm going to spend $100 million, I have to raise $100 million from taxpayers. That's scary. Then I have to prove to taxpayers of today that the value of my program exceeds what they're paid. That mentality is not there right now. Nobody's thinking, I've got to collect $100 million from everybody. We're just going to forget about it. We're going to push it way out to the future. Maybe it'll be all be smooth, but it's lower interest rates. Or even if it's not, hey, some person is not voting me for right today. But you're saying right today, I'm going to increase your spending $100 million, but I'm going to tax you or somebody else $100 million. That's a very different discipline, which I think is necessary to prevent programs from being badly designed and badly run. It is definitely true that we need to have a fiscal anchor to discipline those uh, spending decisions, and we're fully uh, in agreement on that. Uh, and the question is whether that fiscal anchor is a 
debt to GDP that declines gently or debt to GDP that declines steeply. And, uh, you know, we can uh, 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 talk about whether the cutoff point of the public spending that we've seen um, is one where they've allowed programs that are not passing the test that Don has uh, suggested or whether they, whether they haven't passed that test. And so that's uh, a good debate to have. And there are certainly items in the budget that uh, raise my eyebrows. I'm sure there's some that raise Don's eyebrows. Um, and, and that's a healthy debate to have. So, Don, you've expressed concern that a lack of fiscal discipline makes government sloppy when it comes to managing debt. If economies are going to face climate disaster and pandemic shocks on a regular basis, how do we factor them into fiscal planning? Well, I, I, the, the one point, and again, I'm not arguing to disrupt and destroy the economy. You want to have your resources relatively free to deal with the inevitable shocks. So you don't want to go into a situation that could be highly vulnerable. And let's face it, whether it pushes you over an edge or doesn't, we could debate about it and who knows, but let's very face it, 50 to 60% debt burden puts you more vulnerable position than 20 or 30%. And obviously we're not gonna get back to 20 or 30, but if I know I'm gonna to have to completely transform a carbon intensive economy, if I know there's gonna be lots of natural disasters that are gonna come upon people, I wanna have a relatively free hand to deal with those and you don't have a free hand. At least we know unambiguously, it's just mathematics, you have a less free hand at a 50 or 60% debt burden than you would at a lower one. And you're probably gonna have in response to that at some point, higher taxes, whereas you're already gonna require fiscal responses to those others. And you know, never, the one thing that is inevitable, we don't need to debate whether, whether we're gonna have more of that, is we got the aging population, and so the potential growth rate of the economy, unless we offset it with higher productivity, which we've failed to do in the last 20 years, is gonna slow. And, you know, the conservative platform is based upon 3% real growth. I figure the potential growth rate for Canada is exactly half of that, 1.5%. That's tough to do an awful lot. That, uh, that's going to take a lot of your resources to meet healthcare and the like, never mind deal with some of these other things. So, again, it's, it's not coming back and saying it was wrong to do with the pandemic, but it's a shot across the bow. Be really careful what you're proposing here. It seems these free spending promises that are coming left, right, and center, these don't fit, I think, with the challenges that Canada is going to face over the next generation. Yeah, so two points. First, uh, full agreement with Don, and I think a, a lot of economists can come on board with the point I'm about to make to borrow, to, to build on what Don said, which is um, the fundamental thing here uh, that's going to be a challenge going forward is on the growth side. Uh, Don has an estimate of, of around 1.5% of what he thinks the real uh, growth potential is. Um, the budget has a bit higher. The PBO has a bit higher. There's room to debate whether it's 1.5, 1.7, 1.9. But honestly, if we get down to the, the decimal place of whether 1.6 is right or 1.8, I kind of glaze over because we're talking about what the economic potential growth rate will be in the 2030s. And the honest answer is we don't know what the economy is going to be like. It's going to be very different 10 years from now. But some of the factors Don mentioned, the aging of the economy, uh, the lack of robust productivity growth are the exact kind of things that we need to see all parties address in the platforms and the economy in general address. Because the best way to get out of uh, uh, any of these um, uh, debt issues that we have is to grow the denominator, which is to grow GDP. And if we are able to move from you know, Don's based on 1.5 up to, uh, you know, imagine a two handle on that. We got it up to 2.1 or something. A lot of these projections look very different. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be 2.1. I'm not saying it's going to be 3.0, as some parties may be projecting. But, um, you know, that is where the debate ought to be, is trying to find ways to uh, grow the economy. And that's where the focus 
really, I think we can bring a lot of economists together on that point. And have you heard anything on the campaign trail that leads you to believe the candidates understand the importance of boosting the economy through productivity gains? <laughs> well, in, in, fair, in fairness to them, yes, they do address that. And also in fairness, they do have measures. I, I think they're very small. I'm not sure they're even well-targeted. I find, surprisingly enough, they're not even really putting into the context of what is going to be this most incredible, if we succeed, transformation of a carbon-intensive economy to net zero. It's almost like it's isolated from the challenges of that. <laughs> you know, just you know, just pick an example. Uh, be careful what you ask for. What we should be asking of the Canadian banks is to be front and center of greasing that transformation. Banks have not traditionally lent in this space. They're in a carbon-intensive space. They need to lend to groups that they've always been reluctant to lend or on the forefront of technology that don't necessarily have a lot of technology. They need to enter a higher risk base. But instead of that, we've asked them to pay back a dividend for the for the, the gains of the transformation and play a higher corporate income tax. That shows me you don't get it. We actually want something from our banks. We need something from our banks, but we're going to clobber them over the head instead. I want to jump in on one other point that Don raised, which was, uh, you know, Don suggested that the pandemic debt, you know, uh, was necessary to get through the economic shock of 2020. And, you know, the programs that are still in place as they ease out, uh, I, Don has expressed support for those. And I, I, I think I fully uh I agree with his support for those. And what he's suggesting is what we ought to do going forward is the question. And I, I agree with that. But where I, I, I have a challenge with that framework, so we're not talking about the pandemic debt, we're talking about going forward, how much more debt we should take on, how quickly we should lower the deficit. When I look at the current macro situation, if you were to go to the budget uh, of the spring and chop out a couple hundred billion dollars, which is what Don is suggesting, we ought to have a steeper debt to GDP decline, you got to chop out a couple hundred billion dollars from the five-year framework there. If you were to do that, where I have a, challenge, a problem with that is just looking at, say, the Bank of Canada said this morning, they see substantial slack in the economy. They're keeping their emergency bond buying programs, they're keeping their emergency interest rate levels in place precisely because they see slack in the economy. Well, if the Bank of Canada sees slack in the economy, and at that time you have the federal government pulling back hundreds of billions of dollars of spending, I worry about the macro position of the economy going forward and whether the the federal fiscal stance would then be stymieing the recovery rather than supporting the recovery. Well, the, unfortunately, you're getting into the realm of fiction there, Kevin. I did not say anything about hundreds of billions of dollars, and I didn't say anything about the framework between 2025 and 26. What I'm arguing, first of all, is put the damn shovels away. That's the first point, and a much slower, more gradual approach than that. Obviously, I, and I said that repeatedly, I'm not suggesting we do anything that hamper the economic recovery. You don't start this, it's certainly not in any forceful way in the short term. I, I've never said that at all. So I, those two statements you made, I have no idea where you got them from, not from me. I'm glad to hear you support the uh, the, the short-run uh, uh, economic framework. I, I think it is, uh, you know, thinking about having a debt-to-GDP ratio that is declining is something that we both support. Thinking about ways to increase uh, the growth of the economy is something we both support. And then we get down to a debating what the economy ought to look like in 2030, and that, that, that gets harder because uh, making those projections is hard. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time and your insight on this. I think we're going to have to leave it up uh, to the audience to determine who won hawks versus doves here. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Don Drummond is an adjunct professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Kevin Milligan is a professor of economics at the University of British Columbia. Next on the C.D. Howe Institute podcast, 
liberal strategist Scott Reed and conservative strategist Jenny Byrne on the home stretch of the 2021 federal election campaign. And still to come, from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, September 23rd, the Fed on a tightrope, inflation, growth, and the future of U.S. monetary policy, a webinar with Dr. William Dudley, the former president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and October 4th, John Graham, the president and CEO of the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.